HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Hello, this is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Jacqueline Rowell, standing in for Cora Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our new issue, 21.1, features articles on food and power, on care work, and on chefs, restaurants, and culinary creativity. As well, Gastronomica continues to publish its COVID dispatches, short portraits of responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For six weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors. My guest this week is Professor Alicia Galvez to discuss her forthcoming piece, Paqueteros and Paqueteras, Humanizing a Dehumanized Food System. Alicia Galvez is a cultural and medical anthropologist and is professor of Latin American and Latino studies at Lehman College and of anthropology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She has published three books, including most recently, Eating NAFTA, Trade, Food Policies, and the Destruction of Mexico from the University of California Press in 2018. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show, Alicia. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So um, to begin, maybe just if you could give us a little bit of a background and overview of the project. Uh, Can you briefly tell listeners what you do and where you're based? Sure. Um, I... uh, teach anthropology, Latin American and Latino studies. Um, And my research really sits at the intersection of health, food, and migration. Um, That's sort of the through line between my different projects, which might seem a little bit unrelated from the the outside. And I live uh, in Manhattan, but I teach and uh, do most of my research um, in the Bronx, as well as um, in uh, Mexican communities that are based, um, in the states of Puebla, Oaxaca, and some other parts of Mexico. Great. And now you've published three books, the most recent being, um, Eating NAFTA, Trade and Food Policies and the Destruction of Mexico. And that focuses on the ways in which policies transformed food systems and forms of sustenance in Mexico. So the piece that we're going to discuss today, 
um, examines the highly personalized and formal courier networks that move food between family members across international borders. So what key questions or currents um, connected your research over time? And you'd mentioned health, food, and migration. Um, but specifically, how did that motivate your interest in this particular topic of informal food couriers? Uh, well, it's interesting because I hadn't really been formally um, researching paqueteros, but they had been um, such a huge part of the communities that I that I was connected to um, through my research, and I just saw the core role that they were playing, um, the ways that they connect people who are divided by borders, the way that their mobility enables people who don't have the same mobility um, to to connect um, both in terms of material goods, right? Because the paqueteros transport material goods, but really to to connect more symbolically um, in care networks um, with family members and friends um, of people who've migrated um, and their communities of origin. And I became really interested in just kind of drawing out some of the things that I had learned about paqueteros over 20 plus years of research. to to really um, emphasize the ways that they are providing an antidote and um, a counterexample um, in this era of globalization. Um, while so much of globalization is about mobility, it's also about homogeneity and about more of us having access to the same things. Um, in more places. And paqueteros are really about specificity. They're about, you know, transporting someone's grandmother's mole or someone's grandmother's um, dried herbs or um, healing balms or um, spices um, from one place to another. And so there's a, there's a level of specificity and care that's enabled um, that helps, in fact, to ameliorate some of the um, traumatic and painful aspects of um, the mobility that's been produced by migration and precisely by those sort of trade policies um, and agricultural policies that have displaced so many people from their communities of origin in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, so can you tell us a little bit more about um, Pacateros and Pacateros, what, what does it mean? Um, could you offer a sense of the range and scope and history? Um, sure. And maybe also a little bit about the gender dynamics. Sure. Um, so a paquete is a package. It's um, it's a package. And so paqueteros are dealers and packages, essentially, literally is the translation. Um, and what they do is they transport goods um, from one place to another. They aren't necessarily transnational, but my article focuses on the ones that operate between Mexico and the New York area. area. And because most uh, of the people who reside in the New York area who are from Mexico come from um, a region called the Mixteca, which is Puebla and Oaxaca and Guerrero states, um, that's the sort of geographic domain that I was most interested in. And what they do is they um, informally um, transport goods. They might do it in overland. Um, sometimes they'll carry vehicles, electronic goods. Oftentimes the things going um, north to south are consumer goods and electronics, computers, um, vehicles, uh, stereo equipment, et cetera. And the things going south to north are often food, um, food ingredients, um, uh, souvenirs, artisanal handcrafts um, go from south to north. And so paqueteros will fly, um, 
and transport goods in suitcases, or they might transport goods over land. And the thing that really sets them apart from their um, customers is that they have mobility. And unfortunately, because of current migration policies, the majority of people who were born in Mexico who reside in the New York area um, currently don't have access to, to regularize their immigration status and therefore don't have um, mobility. So to have mobility is, is a kind of unique advantage that, that the Pacateros have that kind of sets them apart. But otherwise, they're very similar to their customers and that they're from the same communities that they serve. And they often know, you know, it's their neighbors and friends and family members who they're transporting goods for. So it's a very humanizing um, system. And Pacateros and Pacateras, you know, can be... Um, anyone really, um, there, you know, I, I know of a 65 year old grandmother who does it, um, a 45 year old father, um, the 45 year old father lost his, um, visa. And so his 20 year old daughter has started to do it. She's the one that drives the truck over land over three days from the state of Puebla all the way to New York city and back. Um, so it's a pretty badass uh, profession. Um, it requires a lot of knowledge and a lot of courage to navigate a lot of different, um, legal contexts and um, points of risk. Um, but it's a pretty um, amazing practice as well because it enables people to to really stay connected to their communities and to their families. Thank you. And you raise um, so much there. And I, I have uh, a, a lot of questions, um, you know, about informality, about risk, um, about community connections. So, so I'd like to... Um, uh, move forward to some of those connection uh, questions. But first, um, if you could tell us a little bit about your methods. So in the course of writing this, this piece, um, what kinds of materials did you look at? And what were some of the challenges of your research? And how did you overcome them? Um, well, I hadn't, as I mentioned, I hadn't really formally sought out to, to study Paquetero. So I didn't really come up with, you know, a formal research study to do this. What I realized was that over um, the course of having done my three prior um, major research projects um, that resulted in books, I had gathered a lot of information about Paqueteros along the way um, and had done interviews with them and, um, in fact, the family that I stay with when I do research in, in the part of Puebla that I go to most often um, is a family of paqueteros. And so a lot of what I've been able to observe over the years, I observed because of those connections that and, and information um, that I gathered while researching other questions. Um, and I went and, and, and this particular article emerged because, and it's a story, you know, maybe I'll tell in a few minutes, but um, I was contacted um, by um, federal attorneys who wanted me to testify in a, in a federal criminal case um, as an expert witness about Paqueteria. And, they, and I asked them why they chose me, and they said, there really hadn't been anyone who, there hadn't been any publications about Paqueteria. There was nothing that really kind of explained this practice or contextualized it culturally or, hist or historically. And the mentions, the brief mentions in my prior work um, led them to ask me to be an expert witness. So it led me to realize that there was really a need to um, to publish some of this information because unfortunately Paqueteros are maligned and are criminal, are, um, are discriminated against and they're profiled um, and criminalized in ways that are very unjust and unmerited, and in fact, 
quite violent and damaging to them and their and their communities. And so I thought it was an important role that I played to gather, you know, the notes, the field notes that I had. I'm an ethnographer, so I, you know, work one-on-one um, with families, with individuals um, over an extended period of time. And so I, you know, combed through, you know, 20 years of field notes and observations and photographs and was able to gather um you know, the information that became this article. And then I went back to the paqueteros that I know and asked them to fact check, you know, everything (laughs) that I had gathered um, to make sure that I was getting it right. And they were kind enough to do that as well. And so, you know, if if we can talk a little bit more about some of the systemic barriers um, to this kind of work, um, is there work part of the informal sector? And if so, what does informality mean in this particular context? And then how are the um, paqueteros viewed by customs officials, borders, agents, airline officials when they're importing packages of food, which are often homemade? homemade? How do um, paqueteros navigate those, those spaces and interactions? So there's a really interesting situation that the paqueteros face that is, on the one hand, Um, They're under hyper scrutiny and surveillance. Um, And and so literally every single package that they bring through, you know, the airport um, is inspected, whereas a very small percentage, you know, if we think about container ships um, and, you know, the trucking system in the United States, um, a very small percentage of the goods that cross our borders through those sort of mass massive commercial um, entry points are inspected. Um, but paqueteros, because they're traveling you know, with suitcases um, through JFK, um, literally every suitcase that they bring in is, is x-rayed and often um, tagged for secondary inspection, which means they get pulled out of the regular line that most of us go through as, you know, tourists or, or work travelers through JFK, they get taken to another room and then, you know, every piece of luggage is x-rayed again. And often um, customs officials will pull on rubber gloves, open up the packages, take out every item and inspect it by hand. So paqueteros typically, you know, it's both formal and informal. It's informal in the sense that they are not licensed as importer exporters. Um, They're not doing this in a wholesale fashion. Um, They are individually being contacted by their customers in most cases. Uh, There are some, you know, slightly more formal courier services that that are on a larger scale that I don't address in the article. Um, But the paqueteros that I'm working with are are very small scale. So their customers bring the goods to their their house or their business, get them weighed $5 a pound um, for whatever they're sending. And it gets packaged in a suitcase that travels under the paquetero's name. So the paquetero is, um, you know, traveling uh, with these goods and has to assert, like all of us assert that these are goods that they are transporting, you know, um, that they're personally aware, aware of what's in their package is that this is not some kind of commercial enterprise, even though it kind of is. Um, but they're, you know, just the same way when a friend asks, asks me to carry, you know, a packet of cookies to their grandmother, um, they're carrying goods for people that they know. And so they have to be fully aware of everything that's in their suitcases. They have to know the ins and outs. They have to know that it's okay to 
carry mole, but if there's chicken in the mole, then that's illegal. They have to know that it's okay to carry um, dried herbs, but they can't carry aloe vera because it's um, considered a gel. Um, so they are very versant in you know all of the latest rules and regulations as far as what can be allowed in under customs regulations. However, because they are you know so informal and so small scale, and they're traveling, um, you know, often with suitcases that are filled to the brim. Um, there's a nexus of classism, racism, um, and a very specific kind of idea in the United States of, you know, that really exploded in the Trump era of specifically criminalizing Mexican nationals that tends to presume that what they're doing is somehow illicit, somehow not above board, somehow suspicious. And so they're really treated as being um, suspect by customs officials um, who treat their items and their suitcases with disdain, sometimes with disgust, um, who look down their noses at, you know, the the suitcases that are bulging at the seams. Um, and even though the paqueteros are typically traveling more times in a week than your average banker or, <laughs> you know, high-flying, um, white-collar, you know, international business person, um, the paqueteros are often treated as though they are unaware or incapable of, you know, kind of efficiently or effectively navigating international travel. Um, so this is, you know, and so I really wanted to shed light on the, the irony of this, the absurdity, and also the violence um, that this does to people who are exercising their rights to mobility um, and really connecting their communities, engaging in a practice that's really wholesome and connects back, you know, to you know, we can think back every time, you know, one of us has, has carried, you know, a grandmother's beloved, um, you know, bread in our, in our suitcase or, you know, a friend who travels back from Italy with his favorite cheese from his home community in his suitcase. Um, every time, you know, any of us is doing that, we're doing the same thing as paqueteros are doing. Um, but they're, they're not viewed with that sort of um, lens of wholesome nostalgia. They're somehow being framed as kind of being suspect. Um, and that's, to me, you know, wrong, uh, both morally and um, factually. Thank you, Alicia. And are there differences um, on the, uh, at, uh, at different uh, places um, in terms of the, their encounters, their typical encounters uh, with border officials um, versus in the U.S. Um, and um, perhaps returning to Mexico? Mm-hmm. Um, some things are similar in the sense that they they tend to be, um, you know, working coming from working class families, um, from migrant families that didn't, you know, migrate with all of the, you know, social capital and passports um, that some of their um, more elite um, compatriots did. And so um, because, you know, they're serving undocumented communities and they're connected to undocumented communities, um, they are treated sometimes in both countries as kind of being... um, less than, you know, full citizens. So when they go back to Mexico, you know, they will sometimes be greeted very kindly. I've observed, um, you know, a very polite reception on many occasions by Mexican um, 
airport personnel, airline personnel, customs officials who say, you know, welcome home, compatriot, bienvenido paisano. Um, While I've also observed them being mistreated by airline personnel and kind of, you know, their, their luggage being treated disdainfully because it's not, you know, matching Louis Vuitton <laughs> luggage or whatever. Um, and sometimes they're traveling in first class because, again, they're frequent flyers. They accumulate more points than than most of us ever dream of. And so, um, you know, they aren't treated with the respect that their mobility merits. Um, they're treated in a and sometimes in a classist and racist way um, that has to do with um you know their their class status and their and their racialization sometimes as being from indigenous communities or working class communities, um, and then we also see, you know, there there can be um, manipulation where they're asked to pay, you know, legitimate or illegitimate fees, um, you know, when they're transporting goods across the border. Um, most paqueteros tend to say that. U.S. officials are less likely to ask for bribes and more likely to to behave in a you know transparent fashion, um, but that's not you know one hundred percent the case always. Um, but they tend to fear having to pay bribes more often on on the Mexican side. Um, but the discrimination happens on both sides. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know if I asked, answered your question. Uh, you did. You did. And um, this is um, something that you also address in the article itself. So this this piece will be forthcoming in issue 21.1 in Gastronomica, um, which will be online within the next week or so. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment to talk more with Alicia Galvez. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese, and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten with Jacqueline Rowell talking with Alicia Galvez about her article, Paqueteros and Paqueteras, Humanizing a Dehumanized Food System, available in the forthcoming issue of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Um, so I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about um, the role of paqueteros in the markets. Um, you write, uh, quote, paqueteros operate in the gaps and omissions of the increasingly global and industrial transnational food systems, satisfying a demand for very particular food products that is not meant by the market, end quote. So um, on average, how much does it cost to procure a package and who typically pays for it? Um, Would that be the sender, the recipient? Can you walk us through in a little bit more detail Mm -hmm. what that transaction looks like from beginning to end? What are some of the most popular culinary items? Um, And, and uh, as I think connected to that, you know, what makes these food items valuable in the eyes of their consumers? Is it a question of place of origin, of flavor quality, a family connection? Um, you know, how is that all wrapped up in, in the actual transaction? 
Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, so paqueteros um, might be contracted by the person send. They they might be paid by the person sending or the person receiving. Typically, um, people in the United States residing in the United States tend to have more access to cash. Um, part of the reason that people have migrated is because the wage differential can be you know, around 10 times uh, the wages in the United, in, in Mexico um, on an hourly basis. And so um, typically the, the family members, um, the customers who reside in the U.S. tend to have more um, purchasing power. Um, but what they can't purchase, you know, if you're residing in the United States are some of the very specific uh, local products that might be from a community of origin. So to give just one example, I think a lot of us in the United States are familiar with chiles poblanos. If, you, if you've ever had a chile relleno or um, you know any kind of stuffed chile like uh, chiles en nogadas, it will typically be the large green chile poblano. Chile poblano is pretty accessible in the United States. Now you're not going to see it in every supermarket, but it's not impossible to get. Um, but if you go to Puebla, Chile Poblano, Poblano mean is the adjective for something that's from Puebla. Um, it turns out that there's thousands of varieties of chiles that look, you know, to an untrained eye like chiles poblanos. So there's chiles de miahuatlan, which are spicier, um, slightly smaller, slightly thinner skinned than chile poblano. So if you're from miahuatlan, um, the average chile poblano that you can get in a supermarket in New York City or, or New Jersey is not going to satisfy the, you know, the flavor profile, the specific culinary needs that you have if you really wanted a chile de miahuatlan. This is going to happen over and over again. Um, mole poblano, mole is... Um, a term that can re refer be used to refer to any kind of ground, uh, any salsa that is you know with ground products. So chile, mole poblano is made with chiles with um, a little bit of cacao with nuts and dried fruits and a lot of different spices. It can have a hundred ingredients. Even though mole poblano is pretty widely available these days in New York City, um, every rural community, and in fact, every household has its own particular take on mole poblano. So for someone who has migrated, who's first generation, you know, any old mole is not going to, you know, be as satisfying, as gratifying, um, especially for special occasions as the mole that is made in your home community. And so it's worth it to ask the paquetero to bring it to you if you can do that, if you have someone who can supply you with that from your home community, then to try to secure it or replicate it here in, in the United States. Um, so it's that particular um, nostalgia economy of very particular foodstuffs. Um, and I one of the things that I argue in the article is that this is kind of a a, a perfect storm in, in which um, paqueteros really need, you know, a certain number of migrants in order to have a viable customer base. Um, if a community is super recently arrived and very, very small, it's not going to sustain, you know, paqueteria businesses. Um, there might be one person who kind of occasionally take carries an extra suitcase, um, but it's not going to really um, allow for a paquetero to, to, you know, kind of subsist on paqueteria. 
Likewise, as time goes on and the community ages and the first generation is replaced by the 1.5 and the second generation, I don't see the children of the immigrants that I know you know, having the same desire or or kind of need for that very specific food ingredient that comes from their parents' community of origin. Um, it's really hard to transmit that sort of um, taste and flavor experience that comes from having grown up eating a particular thing at a particular person's table migrating, um, and then, you know, having children and expecting those children to have that exact same (laughs) food nostalgia. The children will have a food nostalgia for the things they grew up with in whatever place they're growing up. If it's New York City, they might have a craving. And I know, you know, children of Mexican immigrants who have cravings for chopped cheese and particular kinds of New York City pizza slices, um, And so they're not necessarily going to be the customer base in the future for paqueteros. So paqueteros really fill a very particular temporal as well as geographic niche in terms of serving that first generation of migrants who can't go back and forth um, perhaps as as frequently as as they would like or at all and have that desire for for foods from their home community um, that they can't meet, you know, with the with the corporate um, and even the small scale, um, you know, kind of food purveyors um, in the places that they've migrated to. And so paqueteros really fill that gap. Thank you. And, um, you know, you, you've mentioned that it's, it's, uh, it really fills a niche market. So is it expensive to procure goods um, through these means? And um, if somebody is um, receiving goods, um, who typically is a sender? Is it, um, you know, a family member, a community member, a small business? Um, can it be all of the above? Um, what does that transaction look like? It could be all of the above, but typically it's family members. Um, and it can go either direction. So I know, you know, people who have said, um, you know, they'll be sitting around, um, you know, a, a kitchen table in an a Bronx apartment and say, you know what, it would be really nice, you know, for so-and-so's birthday, if we could make some, you know, mole, um, some chicken and, or turkey and mole for them. Um, why don't we get, you know, our grandmother or our aunt to, to send the mole. And so they will, you know, commission essentially, um, you know, a shipment through a paquetero and it's not expensive. It's $5 a pound for goods. Um, so, you know, let's say the aunt has a mole business. <laughs> the aunt may not send the mole for free, right? So she'll charge for the mole and then she'll charge for the shipping, which would be $5 per pound for the goods. Um, and it can also go the other direction. So when my friend Maria Pacheco, um, who's mentioned in the article, um, it's a pseudonym that I use for her. Um, when she gave birth, um, she experienced a lot of postpartum difficulties. And her mother said, you know what, you really need to, you know, use these herbs um, in order to to recover more quickly from, from childbirth. These herbs will help you to, to heal more quickly. Um, I'm going to send them with the paquetero. And so the mother, you know, the way that she provided care, um, 
from afar was to procure the herbs, um, some of which she grew in her own garden and some of which she needed to get from other places, but they were easy to get in her community um, and not possible to get in the Bronx. And so she sent them with a paquetero to to Maria, whose husband, um, you know, would not typically be the person um, in their rural community, the husband would not typically be in charge of preparing the herbal remedies. Um, but he got on the phone with his mother-in-law and his mother-in-law walked him through the steps to prepare the, the tinctures and the steam, you know, the, the herbs that would be used in a steam bath as well as teas, um, for her to, to recover. And so they engaged in, um, you know, a practice, a collective practice, collaborative project, um, where he did something that was a little bit outside of the ordinary in terms of his role um, and his knowledge set. He didn't know what to do with the herbs without his mother-in-law explaining it. And his mother-in-law typically would do it, but she wasn't physically there, right? So they were able to overcome those those barriers um, through Paqueteria and through the phone <laughs> um, in order for Maria to feel, you know, cared for, um, which was the first step to her postpartum healing. And that's a really lovely example of how um, the Pacateros facilitate meaningful connections and, and connect um, people and communities across mm-hmm. borders um, to humanize the uh, increasingly dehumanized food system, which is um, the, the primary ar- argument of your article. Um, so on the one hand, we can talk about Pacateros as a small business, as a source of livelihood, and as a micro enterprise that meets a demand fulfilled, unfulfilled by the market. And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, um, Pacateria serve communities. Um, and, you know, food provisioning in this case, the delivery of care packages is, is really a kind of care work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now we are um, rounding up on 31 minutes. I just have a couple of questions, um, uh, you know, looking forward, looking ahead um, as we wrap up. So your work here is largely ethnographic, um, but could it have implications for policy? How might this research inform policymaking? Or are there any specific policy changes that you'd like to see? Um, that's emerged from from this work. Yeah, I I mean I think from a couple of different angles there there are policy changes I would like to see. One is I think that um, we have unfortunately created a situation through our global um, and our domestic uh, food and trade policies. We've created a situation where large corporations are favored. Um, You know, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, makes it very easy for huge corporations to produce produce um, and ship it across the border as though there were no border, right? Um, It really eliminates um, the barriers of mobility for for corporate goods um, and capital. Um, But one, of course, glaring omission in in that arrangement is that people don't have the same mobility. Um, And the, you know, things that are made by small scale producers don't have that mobility. And so we've come to understand globalization to mean homogenization, um, which some people have kind of, you know, simplistically and effectively kind of framed as, you know, kind of the McDonald'sization or the Walmartization of the global food system where we kind of all have access to, you know, corporate snack foods and soda and fast foods. Um, But it becomes much more difficult and expensive and even um, 
luxurious to eat locally, to eat in culturally specific ways, and to connect across borders if you aren't a banana or, um, you know, a tomato or a, or a processed food um, package. And so I think that, you know, policy needs to um, really take into consideration small scale production and the ways that it's um, sustaining of health. Um, it's a lot healthier to eat um, food that has been produced on a small scale um, that's not full of chemicals um, to cut out the middlemen and a lot of the um, steps between growers and consumers um, to um, enable greater mobility of the people who engage in the food production work. Um, to value local communities and the flavors and and foods and um, culinary knowledge and in many cases indigenous knowledge um, of centuries and millennia that have gone into ways of eating and ways of um, sustaining and protecting health and communities um, that are really being ravaged by our current policy um, landscape. And, you know, even though Thank goodness we don't have anyone in the White House who's um, currently trying at the moment to, um, you know, vilify and criminalize uh, Mexico as a country and Mexicans as people um, and to shut the border and build a wall. Um, I don't yet see um, the level of creativity I would like to see um, in the new administration to really humanize our food system and to kind of um, give less, you know, power, take away some of the power of, of corporations um, to determine how um, how we eat, what we eat, um, and who is doing the production of, of food. And I think to, to really kind of um, empower people like paqueteros, and we can think even of, you know, in New York City, um, you know, the food vendors, um, you know, the small scale food producers um, who during this pandemic are the ones that, you know, really showed us uh, the way through when the corporate food system faltered and, and failed in many places to, to feed us. Um, I think this is, you know, something that we need to learn from moving forward in the future. Thank you, Alicia. And um, just a note on the, um, to, to pick up on your note on the vendors in New York City, um, just this past week, uh, intro um, 1116B um, passed in city council. So we saw legislative reform for the first time in, in decades to lift the cap on vending permits. Um, yeah. Now um, that, you know, this kind of connects to my final question for you, um, you know, the pressures that we're seeing over the last year for small scale small-scale small producers, small-medium-sized enterprises um, under the conditions of the pandemic. Have you continued to follow the story of the Pacateros and Pacateras um, after, you know, you've obviously completed the research and writing of this paper before the pandemic, um, but how might the pandemic have affected Pacateria? On the one hand, we've seen a surge in the food courier business, often platform and technology-driven. And then on the other hand, substantial restrictions on mobility, particularly across international borders. So could you could you comment on that, um, what you've seen over the last year? Um, any pivots? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's been, the pandemic has been devastating, you know, 
no, no less devastating for, for Pacateros and the communities that they serve. Um, I think one of the biggest problems has been that um, undocumented immigrant communities um, have just been ravaged by, by the pandemic. Um, economic effects, in addition to being, you know, kind of hyper exposed and 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 um, at risk of of infection. Um, where I work in the Bronx has the highest rates in New York City of of COVID deaths and and um, infections, and so as well as the highest rates of job loss. And so people have been on it, you know. To, to 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 get your grandmother's mole is you know a luxury beyond reach and um you know the paqueteria is in good times a kind of remittance in which people are you know sending money and getting goods and so it helps to enable some people to not migrate um in their home communities because they're receiving you know resources um and you know consumer goods and other things that they receive um, from their migrant um, family members uh, in the U.S. And so remittances are really down. Um, people are people are struggling. A lot of the families I know, um, you know, have gone from multiple working adults in the household to maybe one working adult in the household, and that one working adult has gone from working six, five or six days a week to working two days a week. Um, maybe even fewer hours than, than a full day on those two days. And so they're really struggling to survive. Um, and so they've been unable to, to engage the services of Paqueteria. Um, that being said, I have heard of some, uh, Paqueteria services being used just in terms of, um, herbs and healing remedies. Um, people who are closed out of the formal healthcare system, um, you know, uh, and and you know people who practice all kinds of um, non-Western um, healing um, practices, you know, need herbs and and other kinds of goods um, in order to do that. And some of those aren't available. So I have heard of paqueteros, you know, transporting some of that stuff still um, to the degree that they can. But for the most part, the border has been, you know, pretty difficult to cross. There was a little bit of an opening for a while. Um, I think right now it's open. Um, And, you know, sometimes if they travel over land, um, you know, the, the, they can, you know, sometimes creatively navigate the quarantine rules if you're coming overland as opposed to through an airport. Um, it, it sometimes alters what the quarantine rules are upon arrival. Um, and Mexico has incredibly high rates of COVID as well. I think Mexico is number three right now. Um, and the U.S. is first and I believe Brazil is second. So um, people in their home communities have been very, um, you know, vulnerable to the disease. So it's, it's a tough time all around. Um, but I'm hoping that between the new administration, um, hopefully things getting better with the vaccination, um, eventually becoming more available, people will hopefully be able to regularize a little bit their status. And the ideal would be, um, you know, Biden is talking about uh, a plan to regularize the status of the 11 million people who have had no pathway to legalization, 
um, since 1986. Um, so that would be a whole generation. That would be basically the entire um, customer base of the paqueteros that I work with. What their family members would, you know, and customers would suddenly have mobility. And that could be really incredible. Um, I think we could see a cultural flourishing of, um, you know, people reconnecting to their communities of origin, um, you know, celebrating their cuisine, um, artisans, you know, small businesses. I mean, we, it could just have an incredibly positive impact um, in addition to the basic and most elemental positive impact, which would be to allow families to reunite who've been separated for decades by the border. Absolutely. Um, Alicia, thank you for joining us today. Um, we're going to wrap up now. I, I still have uh, many more questions, but I would direct re- uh, listeners to read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, which is available in volume 21.1 in February uh, 2021. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week as editorial collective Krishnendu Ray hosts an episode on the forthcoming piece, Rumor and Chinese Diets and COVID-19, Questions and Answers about Chinese Food and Eating Habits. Thanks very much, Alicia, for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.